Welcome to the What's Your Story podcast with Alan Sal. And we thank you for joining us for our episode number two, or as they say in Spanish, Espiada Dos. <laughs> and to all my Spanish-speaking friends, if I hack that translation up, I apologize. I can barely speak English properly. So we have an exciting announcement for you guys today. Al is back. That was a short applause, Sorry. Al. <laughs> you cut that applause. Yeah, well. So Al is back. We're very excited to have him back. He was on vacation last week. And mm-hmm. how was your vacation, Al? It was good till the end. Thank you. What happened at the end? I got stuck in Florida for three days well, extra. I don't mind being stuck in Florida. That's a good place to mm. get stuck. Not for $3,000 it was. <laughs> no. You had to drive back. You had to drive yes. back, yep. How was petting the sloths? It was. Did you have a good time? Yeah, it was boring. It was the sloths didn't do too much. They move real slow. Now, um, a question for you: Who is faster, you or the sloth? Uh, the sloth by 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 a nose. Yeah. Or? <laughs> Anybody ever see me work? They know the sloth yes. is faster. Yeah, well, yes. So, Al, I know you are excited for this guest today. Yes, I am very excited. And with us today is our guest, Miss Lauren Malloy. Thank you. Hi, now, everyone. Hi. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you guys inviting me. Um, now, I know Al is, I'm excited, but Al is super excited. Do you know why Al is super excited? No, I don't. Well, let me just tell you why. He actually prepared for this podcast. Oh, cool. This is the Very first cool. podcast that yes. he's ever prepared for. He actually has notes. Show the notes, Al. That makes one of us. A lot of, a lot, lots and <laughs> lots, lots of notes. Of notes. And, I have notes, too. Yeah, yeah. so... Actually, he likes you. I think you're right up there with Cheetos. Oh, that's cool. Or yeah. he's, like, getting ready to just take me down. This is going to be, like, <laughs> oh, I'm will, in the hot seat. You think so? Well, 100%. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, but he likes you just as much as Cheetos, and he really likes Cheetos. I really like yes. Cheetos. He's a, he's a big fan. People who don't like Cheetos, we got to question their motives. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> so, Lauren, um, I got a story for you since this is what your story. Yeah. So, on our last podcast, um, there was a... A uh, talk about divine appointment. Yep. Okay. Uh, R. Kevin Dodge, right? Yes, R. Very, Kevin oh, Dodge. R. Kevin Dodge. <laughs> yes. Divine appointment. Yeah. Um, and you are divine appointment as well. See, oh, that's cool. It is. It's actually, it was pretty more impressive story than the last one. See, on our last, ep- our last season, we had, Ma- um, what's your name? Oh, Al. Yes, Al. Al's friend, Matt, on. He was a state trooper. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. I haven't listened to that one yet, but I saw that in the archives. Yes. It's on the list. And um, so after that podcast, mm-hmm. he, well, me and I worked together and he said, hey, Sal, mm-hmm. I was talking to Matt and he feels that we should do something on cold cases. Oh, that's cool. And I said, oh, that's pretty cool. Al. Let's like, yeah. I said, well, what do you know about cold cases? Al? He says, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and I know nothing as well. Mm. So... We just left it at that. Yeah. So the next morning, I'm getting ready for work. But in the meantime, I probably was eating breakfast, and I'm, I'm on Facebook. Oh, yeah. And I'm scrolling because I'm a scroller. <laughs> Anybody else? Scroller? Oh, yeah. Are you a scroller? Yeah, I get a problem with that. <laughs> so I was scrolling, and I come across a video, and it was from uh, Jared Tillinghast. Oh, goodness. Who happens to be your... <laughs> He's my he is my cousin, and I say that in quotes. He's an illegitimate cousin, but he's real family. Okay, oh, so yeah. he's an illegitimate cousin. Uh huh. So they had he does a uh, Thanksgiving drive. Oh yeah. Which I think do you are you like a coordinator? I was a big part of that last one. Yeah, a big part. Yes. Uh-huh. 
So every he has a boxing gym, and yes. everybody's in the ring, politicians oh. and whatnot. Yeah, and everybody's speaking. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, Jerry said, "Jared says, <laughs> um, my next person I want to speak needs no introduction. <laughs> it is my cousin Lauren Malloy." So <laughs> up steps Lauren. Oh yeah, and she says, "Hi, I'm Lauren. Um, I coordinated, help coordinate this mm-hmm. for for Jared. Also, I am." Uh, from Unsolved R.I. Mm-hmm. Or, or, and um, I handle missing person and cold, cold cases. cases. <laughs> so that was the next morning. Wow. The oh, next, it wasn't wild. even like a week, a month, a year. It was yeah. the next morning. That's spooky. You got goosebumps, don't you? Yeah. Yes, you should. That's wild. Because that is definitely divine wor- uh, appointment. That's, that's how God works. Wow. So um, you started Unsolved R.I. Mm-hmm. And can you give us a uh, audience a brief synopsis of what Unsolved R.I. is? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I also took notes. Oh, she has my three own by five <laughs> index cards, people. And this they're should be highlighted. Good. Um, so we started. Are you a Virgo? I am. Hey. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it people, just from the cards. My people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I started Unsolved R.I. about eight months ago, but this has really been kind of a lifetime worth of work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now it's just more public, I would say. Um, we've grown to 3.6 thousand members on Facebook. Mm. We see between 20 and 55,000 uh, visitors every week, and that's just on social media. Um, we, on our site, we have sections for cold cases, which which are now powered entirely by Uncovered.com, which is a much larger platform. Um, at this point, our friends over at Uncovered have over a thousand active community members who are on their platform looking at cases, getting them visualized, working with families. Some of them are uh, family members of victims themselves who are able to give their insights to not only their own loved one's case, but others. Um, and there's over 37,000 cases and growing on the site. Um, so right now, it is the largest database. It's larger than the Charlie Project and NamUs, which is National Missing and Unidentified Person System, which is kind of the gold standard, and they do incredible work. Um, but it's amazing to see what's really happening with this larger group at Uncovered, and it's been such a blessing to um, bring not only their work, but also my passion to our local Rhode Island community. Excellent. Now we are recording, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm just making sure because he was on vacation last week and I didn't want to go through oh, yeah. an hour interview. And so, Oh, yeah. yeah you be... never know. I know. It's like that you're on mute has been like the one <laughs> of the last yeah. couple of years. <laughs> so what what led you to start this organization? Oh, goodness. Such a loaded question. And yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I um, what do people want to know, Lauren? I know. I know. And I never really do interviews like I do, but it's always about someone else's story or, um, you know, something brief about my mom's case, which is, I think it's the elephant in every room. Um, and my mom, Lori Lee Sled Dog Malloy, was 30 years old when she was found dead on the bathroom floor of our third floor apartment in East Providence. Um, at the time I was 18 months old, I didn't know anything about what was going on until August of 2020 when a woman found me on Facebook and knew a lot of details about my family and um, about my mom's death that I'd never heard before. Mm. Um, so it really led me to ask the question, 
what happened, why, and you just start going down that rabbit hole. Um, so for me, it's been, you know, the last couple of years of looking into her case and trying to figure out what happened um, and learning uh, her case was originally uh, declared, it was a suspicious death and it was declared and investigated as a homicide originally. Um, her autopsy was conducted by a man who lost his license to practice in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and other places. Um, and he basically got the entire thing wrong and said she passed from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is just this like rare and curable disease. Mm. Um, but there was no evidence of it in the autopsy report. Um, and we've since sort of learned uh, her death is undetermined um, cause and manner at this time. That's not officially printed on her death certificate, but it is confirmed by the uh, medical examiner's office. Um, I've, uh, been in contact with all different agencies about this and I can certainly get more into it but it was really um not long after that woman reached out to me that I was sitting in my car outside of Pawtucket Police Department which is where the Rhode Island cold case unit is located mm -hmm. um and I'd had a meeting with the head of the cold case unit and she's a wonderful woman she's done a lot of great work in the state um should totally have more support, I think. We certainly need it, obviously. Um, but I remember sitting in my car and having this woman's business card and sitting there and going, I am on my own. Um, no one's coming to save me. No one's coming to fix my mom's case or figure this out with me. I got to do it myself. Um, so I started taking notes. <laughs> okay. And I had, you know, my little notebook with me. And it was like, I'm going to rebuild my mom's entire case and um, did it with the help of so many people, not just from the Uncovered platform, but a lot of local folks. Um, and my cousin Jared, going back to mm. him, when this all first started, um, you know, we really hadn't been in close contact. Like, we obviously knew about each other um, after my mom died and everything. I was actually, a lot of the time, raised by the woman who was his godmother. And um, so, you know, I always knew of him. But when things happened, I got scared. And I was like, I don't know if there's somebody out there who did kill my mom. Like, mm. I can't talk about it. I don't know. Like, how do you approach this? Nobody knew. And I felt like, well, what what happens if there is somebody and they find out I'm looking for them and they come looking for me? So I went to him and I was like, hey, guys, I kind of need your help. Can you teach me how to fight? <laughs> and did, he so, teach you with, did he teach you that left hook? Oh, yeah, he did. Um, yeah, he's a Southpaw, too. So it was like, I remember that first lesson at the end of it. Um, he looked at me and he was like, you know what your issue is? You've got it all here. And he was like, he pointed to my heart. He was like, you've got the heart and you've got the mind. He's like, you've just got to let go of the fear. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I feel like, you know, auntie, that's what he calls um, his godmother. He's like, I feel like auntie kind of put us in each other's paths to, you know, figure this out and I'm going to help you and you're going to help me. Mm -hmm. And we really did. Um, you know, he recently lost his dad and I lost mm -hmm. my adopted dad a few years ago. So I think it was like he was teaching me to be a fighter and I kind of was teaching him a little bit too in different ways. Um, so you talk about divine appointment. I think of divine intervention in our lives and just yeah. those moments of like, you know, 
you're placed in the path of somebody who's supposed to teach you some type of lesson and you yeah. know that's god just kind of protecting you right and i'm sure you like you said you helped mm-hmm. each other out in that, exactly in that, in that exactly and it was like i gained all that confidence and i made more friends and i built my network and i continued learning and then um in september of 2021 the ag's office had a call with me and i'm gonna take a sip of water for this that's one okay um but I'll never forget that call. And a lot of folks have heard it at this point. But I met with, um, I spoke with the assistant um, attorney general who was working on my mom's case and supposed to be investigating it and hopefully getting it reopened and reclassified as a homicide. And he gets on the phone with me and he said, um, you know, and I understand he's a great person. This isn't a knock against anybody personally. But there was one thing he said. He talked about me not getting my hopes up that I was going to get answers on my mom's death. Mm. And, um, you know, we might never know. And to me, that was just like, what? What do you mean don't get my hopes up? Our state motto is hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, did we elect you? And it was like, no, nah, in that moment, I just, and you can even hear it too. Like, I actually had posted it as, like, an informational mm. resource for people to see where things really stood. Um. But you can hear in my voice, I had COVID at the time. Mm-hmm. So I sound super nasally on the phone. It was the most miserable thing. And I was just like, uh-huh. Like, uh, you know, respectfully, I'm not going to back down from this until I know how my mom died. She was supposed to have an autopsy, and it was wrong. So after that, I started reaching out to people. And um, Channel 10 had originally said they were going to do a story. Um, I think they're still interested, but I honestly, there's been so many different things I've done. I haven't reached back out to them yet. Um, Sorry, Channel 10. Uh, (laughs) But I had um, started reaching out to people, and then I was like, well, if this media group is going to look at my mom's case, I don't want this to just be like a one and done. You're looking at my mom and she's just a fun story to boost your ratings. I want this to be, we're able to shine a spotlight on other families, other victims that aren't getting any attention. Um, And I knew like my mom would have wanted that. She was such a passionate advocate for people um, at a time where that wasn't understood or accepted, especially where she came from. And um, so I felt like that's how she would want her case to be made public is by helping other people. So when I built out her page, I couldn't just build a website like as a tribute to my mom. It felt weird to me. But building it as like this community space where unsolved cold cases, missing persons, and it's kind of expanded to unsolved issues of all kinds um, could really live and grow and become whatever it needed to be to get the goal accomplished. Excellent. Um, So this is your story. Mm -hmm. So um, you said you were 18 months when when your mom passed. Um, Yeah. After that, who did take care of you? <laughs> so I actually had to. It's kind of a confusing timeline. So, so we have, I have uh, several people stepping oh, in. Oh yeah, okay. it's been. Um, you taking notes out? I already have. I know the answer. He's got oh, he, this. Oh, he's he, Oh yeah. He's like, I'm going to play this, this back. Yeah. Okay. He's ready. Um. So I was born in '91. Um. My mom, at the time, she was uh, in the middle of a divorce from this guy, Harry Giovanni Mariano. He went scary, th- Harry. Scary, Harry. I don't think he was that scary. I think he was kind of a chump. Um, <laughs> that's just All me. Right. Uh, but he, I mean, he definitely had a temper problem, um, among other things. And in 1988. 
my mom called the police on him for him reportedly beating her. And he was actually wanted at the time for another felony case where he left the scene of an accident that resulted in serious injury or death. Um, I don't know the details of that yet. We will. Um, but anyway, so he goes to jail for that. She then is trying to divorce him. In 1990, the year before I'm born, he gets out of jail. He violates his protective order against her, and he goes after her again. By this time, she's met my birth father, Tom. And, you know, he was also struggling in life. But from what I understand, and I don't remember him, um, but I understand he was a good person. He just needed a little more help than he ever got. Um, but she's with him, and they kind of start moving around, hiding from Scary Harry and whatever else. And before you know it, they get pregnant with me. Um, I'm born in September of 91. Uh, we were living in Warwick at the – no, I'm sorry, Providence at the time. And we moved to Warwick. And then my first, like, real house as a baby when I was born was a trailer in Foster. Yeah. Um, literally a trailer. I've got pictures of it. It's like plywood boards and yeah. just it wasn't very nice. Um, but my father and my half-brothers and my mom, you know, tried to make it a home. Um, that was where we started. And by July of 92... My mom left my father, Tom. Things didn't work out with him. And uh, she was still in the middle of this divorce. She finally managed to serve Scary Harry in prison. Um, he was in maximum security at the ACI at the time. And she moved back to East Providence where she'd grown up. Um, that was where we ended up at our final apartment on North Hall Street. And um, shortly after her divorce, uh, which was granted December 28th of 92, We'd already moved into the apartment by then. Um, she was found on March 7th of 93. The week prior to that, she um, visited the doctor to take a pregnancy test um, as she had been in a relationship and had obviously moved on. Um, I don't know the results of it, but the Emmys today say she wasn't pregnant when she passed. Um and yeah, I mean, it was just three weeks after she died, her divorce decree was final with um, Scary Harry. Right. A lot there. Yeah, so um, yeah. that was kind of the start of things. And then when she died, my life kind of upended completely. Um, my maternal grandmother, she was battling stage four ovarian cancer oh. at the time. Um, so she originally was going for custody of me. And my birth father obviously wanted to get custody of me as well. So it kind of resulted in this, like, all-out war. Um, meanwhile, my mom's sister, Allison, who had been one of the original witnesses on the homicide investigation, she, um, you know, sort of started working with my grandma when she realized, like, my grandma wasn't going to make it to take over and, like, try to win me and keep me in the family. Um, so by 96, my grandma had passed away and Allison sort of takes over this custody battle and files against Tom with her then boyfriend, Richard. Um, Richard became my adopted dad. And I mean, I always say he's my real dad. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he was just the best and you talk about divine appointment and intervention. Mm -hmm. That was my dad all day. Um, so 1996, just before Christmas, I do remember the judge saying, Merry Christmas, she's yours, um, and my adoption being finalized. I did not see my father again after that, and um, be very honest about it, there were allegations of abuse by him um, against me. 
I do remember being brought into the courtroom as a little kid and like holding this little stuffed seal and going in the back room and talking to these women who asked me, you know, touch the doll type of a thing. And um, it was, you know, I don't remember anything. And I, I don't even know if that happened or if that was, um, you know, unfortunately my aunt Allison wasn't well either. And I think she was in a really tough spot of her sister passed and her mom passed and she was going to lose her niece. And how do you keep this child here in the family and her father from getting her? So I don't know about that one, but I do know um, once my adoption was finalized, you would think that that would be the end of it. It was not. Um, until from about 96 to 2001, um, I went back and forth to three different houses in a week. Um, wow. So I would like take a typical school day. This is the easiest way to explain it. Um, I would go to school, get off the bus. And I always went to private schools, elementary and middle school. It was like really important for my family, even when they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, they always felt like education was going to be that thing that saved my life. And it did. Um, but they would send me to school and I'd get off the bus. My dad would pick me up, bring me to his house on Glasgow Street in Providence, which is uh, right near VZ Street off of Branch Ave in Douglas. Um, you know, it's had some rougher times, good, really hardworking families, but it, you know, definitely could use more resources and support. And uh, I would go to my dad's house there for a few hours where I'd have dinner, do my homework, hang out with him and my dog. And then around like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, Allison would show up um, from wherever she was working and she would take me to her boyfriend's house in Pawtucket. Um, We did not have a lot of furniture there. We slept on blankets on the floor. Um, We had a card table and like some folding chairs and stuff. And the one thing that we did have, though, was a lot of books. Um, Allison was the, um, she called herself a special friend of uh, this man, Musa Kalimula, who I credit him with teaching me how to speed read and getting me really interested in learning languages and, um, you know, always continuing my education. And we lived in a tough spot, but he had a lot of plants in this one room. And like, if you see my house today, I'm always told to like, leave the plants at the door and not bring them in. Um, Who tells you that? <laughs> yeah, right. I know. I'm looking over at my, uh, <laughs> my agent and manager uh, over yes. here. I've got my family watching. Um, but, yeah, it was just, I mean, it was a tough time, but there were good things. Um, and that was night times. I'd go there and fall asleep whatever time. And every night, the one thing I always did was – I just always looked forward for whatever reason to like being 16. I always had like a goal in mind of like when I'm 16, I'm going to be able to drive a car and like go to my dad's house and stay there and like life's going to be good. But it kept me moving forward. Um, And then the next day I would wake Allison up. Um, She struggled with substance use issues. And so sometimes in the morning it was really hard for her to wake up. Um, And when she would get me to school, which was not always the best process, she had a lot of um, anger struggles and would uh, yell on the way to school. So I got really good at de-escalating situations with people who were just not doing so well. Um, And on the weekend, so I would do that Monday to Friday. And then Friday afternoons, um, my dad would take me to the courthouse downtown. 
And his sister, Charlotte, Jared's godmother, worked at the courthouse. And um, she was just like my guardian angel. Um, Like all day long, she would get out of work at 430 and she would take me to her house in Barrington um, for the weekend where I'd get to stay. And I, you know, I, I just remember like being in her car and being a little kid and us, when we'd get on the highway, um, like I'd always be kind of holding my breath. And when we get to Barrington, it was like, as soon as we hit the Wampanoag Trail, um, she would like always look in the rearview mirror and be like, we did it. We escaped for another weekend. We're here. And it was like, yes. So, um, you know, that was, that went on for a few years. And then in 2001, I started talking to my teachers. Um, so I was going to this little private school in Barrington and, uh, my teachers noticed that something was different. Um, they made notes on my report cards that, you know, my grades were great. I was still getting straight A's, but I was more quiet in class. And, you know, now, years later, I understand that's a sign of a problem with a child. Back Mm. then, it was just, I'm going to keep all of this trauma to myself because I don't know what to do about it, and I don't want to get my family in trouble. Um, So I started talking to one of my teachers at lunchtime. And next thing you know, they're calling in my Aunt Allison for a meeting with the principal. But before that, they put us alone in a room together while we waited. So of course, um, you know, she's sitting there and it's, um, why would you tell them these things? I never did that to you. I would never, do you not want to see your family again? Um, so like, you know, number one rule, if you're dealing with a child abuse case or a potential alleged child abuse case, don't put the abuser alone in the same room as the minor child. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, You know, and I'm glad that many schools and companies and groups have uh, adopted that obvious guideline for these situations. But back then, I think, you know, it's neither here nor there. It happened. Um, And I, of course, went into the principal's office and was like, nope, don't know what you're talking about. Everything's fine. Um, And it still bothers uh, some of the people who still work there. It bothers them to this day. They remember it. Um, But in a way, it was kind of a blessing because I had amazing teachers at this school and um, Barrington Christian Academy and um, mentors who really did care about me. and, you know, I know that you guys have um, a pretty faith-based following, I think, like your core audience. So I did actually write down my life verse from back then, um, okay. which this was something we had, like Bible verses we had to memorize every week. And for Excellent. me, it was sort of like, you know, okay, I'll memorize this Friday morning before I have to do the quiz and like not think of it. Mm-hmm. But there was always one verse that stuck with me. And to this day, it's like my life verse. And it was Philippians 3, 13 through 14, um, which says, I don't consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. But one thing I do, um, forgetting these things which are behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And um, I liked that verse because... You can take everything away from it, and it's just about, like, focus on a goal that's bigger than yourself. Um, For me now, the goal is justice. Back then, it was just survival. (laughs) So it was – I started focusing on, like, all right, I'm going to focus on my goals. I'm just going to keep hitting these goals. And that was probably, like, you know, sixth grade I I first heard that verse. And um, so then 2005, I started at classical high school, um, and it was a fight 
to go there. My Aunt Allison wanted me to go to LaSalle Academy. We could not afford it. I knew that by then. It was like that wasn't going to happen, and I was just going to be that bullied, broke kid um, getting called white trash again. So it was like we're not going to do that. I want to test into classical. And I got in and that was a whole other experience because I went from feeling like, you know, the girl, you know, the, the charity case who couldn't afford the tuition and like literally had to work in the lunchroom dumping out old milk to like pay off tuition bills to being like, oh, I am surrounded by people who are just like me, but none of them look like me. It was the first time in my life that I was really exposed to diversity. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, to go from this private little mostly white school, my best friend was a black gay man. Um, We're still friends to this day. Uh, You know, he's down living in Texas, living his best life. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was a minority and I was a minority. And we bonded through that, me through being the white trash girl and him being the black gay kid um so going to high school and suddenly being immersed in this world of totally different people was like yes finally i can do something and um you know, I was always kind of the geek. Uh, so I ended up in some honors classes and made friends with kids, you know, great ahead of me who kind of like took me under their wing. And um, I was super sheltered, but I was book smart. So I kind of hooked up with the kids who were street smart and maybe needed some help studying. Um, and we really played off each other. And uh, one of my really good friends, actually, Daryl, um, he is, you know, just an incredible person who taught me a lot about poetry, um, particularly through hip-hop and rap and got me into like old east coast stuff and um you know took me seriously i was into poetry at that time of my life in high school i was dealing with a lot of depression and things going on at home and you know this world of music with uh black artists and with people who grew up in these tumultuous situations really um spoke to me and I don't know, it just kind of changed my life to like be in that setting. And the thing I took away from high school the most was like how much I leaned on my friends. Um, And one of the biggest things that came out of that was I finally stood up to my Aunt Allison. Um, And funny enough, Charlotte, uh, when the year after my mom died, she gave me uh, this like little tape recorder set. So like kitty recorder, I still have a picture of it, had like a a red microphone. It was a cassette recorder and it had um, all primary color buttons and a smiley face. Like Fisher Price. Yes, exactly. I think it was Fisher Price, too. I got to find the picture. Um, But I found it in the basement one day and I realized that it still worked and I tested it out and i realized i could record allison yelling at me and that became a game changer so i kind of thought about it and i i like hyped myself up about this and i told charlotte i'm gonna do this so that she can't do this to me anymore and she was like please for the love of god just be careful like don't Mm. get yourself in trouble how old were you at this at this point i had to have been like 14 maybe 14 Um, yeah. So, I mean, like it had been going on for a while. It was nothing new, but I was getting tired of it. Um, so one day on the way to school, um, Allison was kind of playing her thing again and she was yelling and she was hitting the car seat in front of me. Um, I'm sitting in the back and I'm just like, this is not going so well. I'm going to like sit as far back from her as I can. And I reached into my bag as she was yelling and I waited and I just hit record And I just sat there and we get to school and, you know, I get through all of that. 
And I get out of the car and I step far enough away from her. I looked in my bag and I'd stopped it, rewound it a little bit and hit play. And I could hear the audio. I was like, yes. So I pulled it out of the bag and I looked at her and I was just like, you're done. You are done with this abuse. Stop torturing my dad. Stop torturing me. Stop yelling at me. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, what? Get back here. Get back here. We need to talk. And it was like, no, we're done talking. Um, And that was the day I walked inside and my friends were like, are you okay? I said, no, I'm not. And they took me down to guidance and I was able to, um, start telling a peer counselor about what was happening. Wow. Um, and that was my introduction to grief therapy, um, which, you know, nowadays my friends laugh because I always talk about my grief journey. And um, a lot of people, if you've never lost somebody close, that might not make sense. But mm-hmm. for me, um, you know, you start a journey every time you lose someone who's close to you. And mine really started when I was 18 months old and my mom died. That mm-hmm. was kind of the first journey. Um But I really started another grief journey that day where I was like grieving this fake fantasy that Allison was putting out and that I was pretending was, you know, our real life and everything was fine. And I was like, no, this is how things really are. And, um, you know, she stopped yelling at me and kind of backed off a little bit after that for the most part. Um, and I never, I never did anything with the recording just because you have something doesn't mean you use it. Um, but it was always there. And 2009, I graduated from high school. Uh, by that point, I was already working like 30 something hours a week at this little clothing store in Barrington. Um, so I would, before I had a car, I would go to class and then at the end of the day, I would get downtown to um, the bus stop at Kennedy Plaza and I would go to Barrington, go to work and then go home at like eight, nine o'clock at night, do my homework and then get ready and get up and do it all again the next day. Wow. Busy little beaver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And like in the morning, I would take two, because um, I was going to school at Classical in Providence. My parents lived in Providence. But by the time I was in high school, most of the time I was living with Charlotte. Um, it was just obviously a healthier environment. Right. Um, and in the mornings, like she, when her schedule was different, I would take two buses in the mornings to get to school. Which, like, I think about that now. I'm like, oh, my God, taking two buses every single morning. I'm all set. But back then, it was like, this is my chance to read and to, like, listen to my music and to think Mm -hmm. about my day and get my homework done. So I looked at it as an opportunity. Um, And that's kind of always been what I've done. Um, So that was my opportunity. When I got a car, it was like, yes, I've got this like little Pontiac Sunfire with 100,000 miles on the dash. I'm free. (laughs) It was exciting. Um, But graduated from high school, went to Rhode Island College. um, And I first was going to major in social work. Um, That was, I was kind of set on that. And my family was like, well, don't pigeonhole yourself because like we have social workers working for us in our companies like you know we know that that's where your heart is do something in business and then you can do more for the community and that was such a light bulb idea for me that like I could do something that could make a greater impact so I changed my major and I switched to operations management and I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 
the first time in May of 2013. Um, by that fall, when I was in the middle of uh, the hiring process at Fidelity Investments and got a call from their security office that there was something wrong with my application and I might have lied on my education history. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we show that you went to Rhode Island College, but you didn't graduate. I'm like, well, I've got a bunch of witnesses to this. Like, right. here's some pictures. What do you mean? But I'd never actually gotten my diploma. And I like... Oh. I didn't really think about it because I don't really hang those things up. So I was like, oh, well, let me call them. I was actually missing like four credits wow. to graduate. It was like three or four credits. So I had to take a gender studies virtual class um, <laughs> while working at Fidelity because they were kind enough where they understood it was just like a really weird situation yeah. where yeah. they let me graduate. Um, and they passed me for it. Uh, but I ended up obviously getting those credits. So technically graduated 2014. Mm. Um the same time I'm working at Fidelity, I had also gotten involved with um, somebody who was much older than me. I say much, it was like seven years older. Um, and this person, we just had a lot of differences in the vision for our lives. Um, and it became a really unhealthy situation really quickly. Um, and something that I see play out time and time again in speaking with different families and stuff. And by... 2015, um, my relationship with this individual just had dissolved. Um, but on the outside, it looked fine because I didn't want to worry my family and I didn't want to let people down. And we worked at the same company. So it was like, I couldn't get away. <laughs> um, it exactly. Totally felt like that. It was like, and he was older and, you know, I didn't come from money and things like that. And it was like, I didn't have all these life savings to lean back on. So I felt trapped. Um, so I was kind of like 2015, don't know what I'm doing. And uh, two days before Christmas, I got a call. It was like 8 o'clock at night um, from my uncle. And he said my aunt Charlotte was in the hospital. And he's like, she wants to talk to you. Like, don't cry. And I don't like immediately I'm like, I'm going to cry. Right. And they say, don't <laughs> Thank cry. Thank you. Yes, it's, it's going to be. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and he said uh, my aunt had been diagnosed with leukemia. And instantly it was just like, you know, you talk about grief journeys. Another one began that second. And it was like, no. Um, and she got on the phone and it was like, no way. And my life just changed because I remember um, the person I was with, I went up to them. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. And they didn't really get it. And on Christmas, um, when she was finally allowed to have visitors, you know, he didn't want to go with me. Mm. And I said, you know, to myself, I said, if somebody doesn't want to go with you in the worst moment of your life, they don't deserve to be a part of the best moments. Like, I knew what I had to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I went with my cousins, and we decorated her hospital room for Christmas. And uh, we were able to spend some time with her. And I'm glad we did because it was the last one. Um, a couple weeks later, I moved out of my apartment. I packed – I called in sick to work, pretended I was sick. Um, and then as soon as I knew he would be in the office, I, um, I had reached out to somebody on Craigslist who was looking for a roommate in a shared apartment with like three other people I didn't know in the middle of Woonsocket, but it was only 450 bucks a month. 
Wow. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't turn that down when you're yeah, about yeah. to be single and broke. So yeah. I reached out to this girl and at first she's like, hey, sorry, I already rented the place. Oh. Um, tough luck. The next morning before I called in sick, she texted me really early and she's like, this is weird. I already had the place rented, but I want to give you a chance. Um, and she's like, if you want it, let me know. And it's yours. And I was like, please like i'll take it but you just have to like trust me i'm not being sketchy i have to give you the cash after i move my stuff in Mm. and she was like what and i'm like i promise (laughs) i'll explain but the reason why is because the second i withdrew that money my ex was going to get the notification to the bank account and we lived maybe 10 minutes away from the office so he was going to come home and that was going to be it Mm. um so i spent the day running around like a chicken with its head cut off um i had a fiat which if you've ever much in that yeah i'm like of all moving vehicles like (laughs) this is my getaway car (laughs) it's like a clown car it was not very exciting um but it was it was a tough day and the toughest part was i had a dog um and my dog had really been the reason why i stayed um much longer than i should have and I knew I couldn't take him with me. So I had to say goodbye. And saying goodbye was the tough part. But that night, even in this tough little apartment with three strangers in the middle of a windsocket, having no clue what I was going to do, I finally felt, like, free. It was like, all right, I don't know where I'm going, but this is cool. Like, we're getting someplace. Um and then I had to see him at the office the next day. So, yeah. And uh, to make matters worse, we worked on the same team. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. So it it really was. And it was like, so I'm dealing with um, the person who's like my mom, who is very sick. And uh, I've just left this relationship. Nobody understood because this was a clean cut person from a great background who was doing well and seemed to be very loving and caring on the outside. Um so I remember even like sitting in the parking lot of a Walmart with my best friend and having a relative reach out and say like, no one's perfect. Like everybody makes mistakes. So like, what are you looking for? Why don't you just settle for this? And I was like, I'm not settling. I didn't come this advice. far. Oh, no, no. I was like, I'm not settling. I didn't come this far to settle. And that was just, you know, I just accepted in that moment. Like I'm not settling. Hmm. And so a couple months later, um, in May, in March, excuse me, March of 2016, I moved into a new apartment by myself um, in Riverside, which was right next to where my aunt was in Barrington, a little closer to her, closer to home. And I managed to get my dog back. Um, Yeah, I had written a pretty compelling letter to my landlord. um, And he was like, you're the first tenant in 12 years. You've been persistent enough. You made a compelling argument. If you can pay this deposit, he can come. And that was like, wow, I just won this case. It's kind of like my first case. (laughs) Um, And it it was cool for me. And then May 1st, my aunt passed away. Um, and instantly, boom, everything changed for me. Cause it was like right before mother's day and, um, you know, just so much. Uh, so a month later I quit my job. Um, I had a really like super risky backup option in sales that was a hundred percent commission. And after going through a two month training program and making it into this company, um, I, 
realized it wasn't what I wanted. I didn't like the aggressive sales pitches. I couldn't. Mm. It just wasn't aligned with me and my values. Because so. you're a Virgo. Yeah, that's, ex- <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, so one day my friend convinced me to just up and quit, which is not something I'd ever done before. I always gave advance notice, and it was like it was a exterior home remodeling company, totally not my thing. I remember walking in with the window display and like putting it in the office, and then being like, "Wait, you need to sit down and talk about this." I was like, "No, you take the window back. I'm done." <laughs> um, But then I had no backup plan. So I'm living on my own, um, trying to afford an apartment, a dog, um, you know, bills left and right. And what do you do with no job? So I went back to Craigslist um, because it worked out so well the first time. (laughs) And uh, I answered an ad for a housekeeper in Narragansett and managed to get my best friend at the time also a job. And for that whole summer, basically, I helped clean big houses in Narragansett. Um, and for me, like a lot of people I know looked at that and said, this girl went from um, being in this long-term relationship and looking at building a house and being in this giant company and like on the way to success to you're now cleaning toilets in people's houses for mm. cash and like you can't pay your bills. Like, what is this? And I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I was on the right track. Um, So even like those days were critical for me because I had never learned budgeting from my parents. Um, They, you know, my dad woke up at five and he worked until three and he would get me from school. And he just was a hardworking man his whole life. But he was never taught personal finance. Um, So he was just a hardworking man all his life. And when I would drive to those houses to, you know, clean bathrooms and kitchens and stuff that weren't mine, I would listen to podcasts of like Susie Orman and um, Dave Ramsey and these different people who taught me about like how to consolidate debt and set a budget and make a goal for myself. And, um, you know, that was really motivating to me, even on the days when we wouldn't get paid because the girl who employed us just couldn't pay us. Um, And then I interviewed at my present company, which is uh, one of the larger um, gaming technology companies in the area. Mm -hmm. And they liked me, but they didn't hire me. Um, They were like, hey, we kind of we're in the middle of some changes right now. We got to wait. Well, while while I was waiting on them, I'm also dealing with all these bills creeping up and, you know, cleaning toilets doesn't pay your rent um, every time. So I had to figure out something else to do. In the middle of all of this, one of my friends um, reached out. She was in the middle of an abusive relationship herself in Texas, and she needed help. Um, It got really bad. And one day her mom called me and said, can you fly down to Houston and help my daughter get back home? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, There was no hesitation with it. This was somebody I'd known since middle school who had known everything I'd gone through and I knew what she was going through. And so I flew down to Houston um, and we drove for 29 and a half hours uh, with two Weimaraners, which are bigger dogs for those who don't know, (laughs) in the back of a Chevy Tahoe. Um, Lisa wasn't the, um, what what kind of cloud did you have? 
Oh, a Fiat. Yeah, a Fiat. Can you yeah, imagine? Yeah, yeah, I know. We would have had to like bungee cord the dogs <laughs> to the roof. <laughs> like that would have been it. Um, but it was that was kind of a crazy experience because we weren't just driving to move. We were driving away from a really scary situation for her. And the whole time she's getting calls from this person and their family and they're saying all kinds of things that are scary to her. Um, we were literally just taking turns driving and stopping at rest stops to like wash up and get snacks and, you know, then switch places and keep driving. Um and along the way, she was she had a job already planned back here in Rhode Island. But along the way, we got a um, we got a call from her future like VP of this company who was friends with her mom. Mm-hmm. And this woman's like, "Hey, can you pass the phone over to your friend Lauren?" When we were in like Virginia or something, I don't even know. And um, she spoke with me, and she's like, "Hey." My name is Tracy and I I help hire for this company and you know uh your friend's mom was telling me a lot about your background and things you've done and her company was in marketing and recruiting and hiring so it was kind of aligned with my degree in business and the work I'd done and she's like what are you doing now <laughs> and I'm like well I'm kind of in between opportunities <laughs> like you know what do you say yeah. and she's like so I would love to have you interview for a role as a recruiter and I'm like maybe I you sure like I maybe and she's like yeah you know it pays and it paid more than I'd made at fidelity wow and I was like Yes, absolutely. I can interview. Like, mm-hmm. when can we do this? And I got the job. I ended up, I interviewed with a panel of people and I was hired by this company. And a couple months after I was hired, um, the company that I'd originally interviewed for that I work at now yeah. reached out and said, hey, are you still interested in us? Like, sorry, it took so long, but like, we're here. And it was actually perfect timing because I would have never been able to help my friend get back up to Rhode Island. um, And I would have missed out on learning so many different things if I had just gotten the job and been hired that summer. Mm. Um, So, like, my friends refer to it as the uh, magnificent summer of unemployment, (laughs) (laughs) where it was like this was my chance to just not work for a little bit. Um, But I really did learn a lot. And that kind of set in motion something where I was like, oh, you can advocate for somebody and really make a difference even if it is just for one person like your actions can do something um and that was the same time i started volunteering uh my best friend uh she was the president of uh, the rhode island dream center for a number of years they um, help the homeless and do a lot of work in the community um, and she invited me to start volunteering on their weekly food truck And it was my first opportunity to go down to crossroads and other shelters and meet face to face with, um, you know, neighbors who've been displaced for whatever reason. Um, And it was that was enlightening to me. And my best friend has a saying. She always says, we're all only one um, one choice or one event away from a totally different life. And when I thought back on all the different events that happened in my life and all the ways that I was picked back up and the divine interventions. And then I sat there and was like, well, you know, what's to say? Like, I could have been in the same line getting soup from somebody. Right. So it changed my mindset, and I started treating all the people that we volunteered with and alongside 
the exact same. Like it was, you know, this is my neighbor. This is my friend. You know, this is me. You start seeing yourself in people when you start recognizing that everyone's suffering is the same. It just takes Mm. different forms. Um, and that was kind of pivotal. Uh, so that was, you know, 2016. Um, I really focused on rebuilding myself. In 2017, um, I found my half-brothers again. It oh, was let's, like... Let's, um, yeah. Let's, so basically, speaking oh, you of half, half-brothers, <laughs> mm-hmm. yes, um, that was basically the first case you solved right it was that so, was the first case yeah. i solved you caught you did your homework i did my homework yeah see al you're not the only one that does homework and i'm not i guess it's <laughs> funny yeah that was the first cold case i ever solved was my own um yes. uh, it was like 22 23 years since i had seen them and i had one picture i didn't know their names um but i i I really had just gone and Google and like looked up my father and saw what I could find. He passed in a car crash in 2009. It was an accident in Cranston. Um, and I actually, I had an opportunity to speak with the survivors, uh, both the man who was driving the Jeep he was in and the person driving the car who hit him. And both of them were very kind. Uh, the man who hit him, he was, he felt a lot of guilt. So it was good for me to, be able to talk to him because I was also able to let go a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, just the doubts and the fears and all those things. And I forgave him for my dad. And, you know, I still look and see how he's doing because he's a father and he's a great dad who loves his daughter. Um, And for me, it was like, that was an interesting opportunity. And I always just wanted though, to find my brothers. Like that was my big thing. All those years was I would tell people I was an only child because it was just way easier. Um, explain everything. Yeah, exactly. Like, what are you going to say? Um, but I always thought about them and I just wanted to know, like, are they alive? Are they okay? And, um, in 2017, I went on ancestry.com, which wasn't as well known back then. They were starting to be, um, and I signed up for a free trial profile and I looked up my father because my thinking was if somebody else is building out the same family tree as me, like, what are the odds? We have to be related because who the heck is going to care enough about this guy to build out his tree? Um, and I found somebody named Donna, and I sent her a message, and I heard nothing back, but it looked like she knew him somehow. And my free trial was coming to a close, and I was like, I'm not paying for this every month to just be let down again. So I canceled it. And I forget if it was like a couple weeks or a month later or whatever, but I got an email, and it was from Donna Kelly. And she said, hey, this is your aunt. Um, you know, I know all your brothers. Like, give me a call. I want to talk to you. And I, like, fumbled through the phone, you know, like, oh, my God. And I remember calling her, my hand shaking, and her being like, hey, we all remember you. We've missed you so much. And it was like, my brothers are alive all of them and you know their names and you know where they are and it was it was wild and to get back in touch with them was just surreal um especially my i call him my little brother um my youngest half brother he is five days younger than me um (laughs) our father had some fun uh yeah but he um he's just i'm so proud of him he he works so hard he's an emt um he wants to stay in law enforcement 
and helping people and he hopes to get into the police academy um yeah he's fantastic and that i remember the day i met him like learning that he still lived in rhode island i was like all right where are you like what's your address like i've got to see you like let's go like grab dinner or something and he was like, you know, he's very shy. He's a lot like me. And he was like, <laughs> I, yeah, like, you know, I'm not too sure. And I was like, all right, I'm outside your house. Get no. out. Get in the car. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I just, I love my brother. I love all my brothers and um, my sister, too. I have a younger half-sister named Emma, mm-hmm. who is 16. Um, she was kind of like an added blessing to all of this. Um, but, yeah, in 2017, I found them again. And that, it made the local news. And it was yep. the first like cold case I ever solves. That's awesome. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what led to all of this. I'm excited seeing them for the first time. Yeah, it's um, it's still taking. It takes getting used to. Like I, I'm now at a point where like I'm, I'm closer with my younger brother because we live in the same state. We've seen each other. We're the same age. Um, my older brothers, they're all in like their 30s, and my oldest brother's in his 40s. Um, all fantastic. I'm probably the closest with my oldest brother, Tommy. Um, he's been such a rock to me through all of this um going to him with all these questions and you know he was like 16 when my mom died so he remembered her and he was able to tell me more about her and um you know that was a little surreal for me right um but it's been cool and i'm just kind of like i like getting to know them but the the main thing to me was always just knowing that they were alive and that was the biggest blessing that's awesome Mm -hmm. so now when you you ditch the uh, other guy Mm-hmm. Right, someone's glad that you did that. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Talk about your family. Oh yeah. So um, I'm here today with my agent and manager. So my <laughs> agent is my daughter Eva. Um, she's ten, and then my manager is my husband Eric. Um, and he was actually my first boyfriend in high school. Oh wow. Yeah. United. Oh yeah. So nice. when we were, I mean, I was going through all my stuff, and uh, you know, I met him. He was one of the first people who really like got me out of my comfort zone and like got me to sneak into concerts downtown and like <laughs> like 15 <laughs> years old sneaking into Lupo's to go see like metal bands and stuff. Um and so like back in the day my dad wasn't really the biggest fan of him, I would say. Um so as an adult when we met up again after, you know, everything had happened with Charlotte and all of that. Um my dad was like, this one, this is the one. (laughs) And he met him again. I was like, give him a chance as an adult. And he did. And he was like, okay, I see it. And, um, two days before he died, actually, we went to dinner with my dad and it was, we weren't supposed to go to dinner with him that night. Um, at the time, my husband at the time was my boyfriend. He was, um, he was at a union meeting and I was just waiting for him to get out of it. And my, I called my dad just like, talk and my dad was like oh um what are you doing do you want to go to dinner and it was like yeah absolutely um, you know we um eric's could come with me and we went and met up with him at zorba's on mineral spring in Very north familiar. providence yep um the owner sammy's fantastic along with the whole staff they are great um we sat down and that dinner there was something different about it um 
people kept coming up to us. He was a regular there, but people kept coming up to us and talking about, oh, your dad talks about you all the time. And, um, oh, you're like the light of his world. And now oh, your dad's such a great guy. And we left. And I remember saying to Eric afterwards, wow, this is going to sound really weird, but it was like, I feel like I'm going to see those people at his funeral. And a week and a half later, I did. Wow. Um, it was, I was supposed to see my dad that Saturday. And he said to me, he was like, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it. And I was like, what do you mean you're not going to be able to make it? And he's like, oh, you know, I I, I don't know. Something kind of came up. And I don't know if he wasn't feeling well by then or not. But a couple days after that dinner, he had a heart attack. And wow. he was 62 years old. Wow. Um. And that for me was obviously devastating. Um, he was my best friend and, you know, that was a tough one. Um, and it took me a long time to really absorb that loss. And by the time I did, it was, you know, that was 29, that was March of 2019. It was really not until 2020 that I started to. Wow. Yeah. And it was pretty fresh. It sounded that long ago. Oh yeah. When I spoke, when we spoke, we spoke, we were, um, messaging yeah um, you told me how you know he was the smartest guy you ever oh, known yeah. and you were so proud of him and, mm -hmm. and what was his business so he works for at the time it was called chem art in lincoln um now i think it's called it's either baldwin or beacon hill designs i'm sorry i don't know it immediately i want to say baldwin mm -hmm. um but he was one of the first employees at this company where he was a chemical etcher and he made mostly uh gold-plated ornaments uh brass ornaments and he used chemicals to kind mm -hmm. of make them from different molds and those ornaments were special because they um, they were often featured in the White House and with the Newport Mansions Historical Society. Wow. Um, so we collected them over the years. And before he passed like that, was he passed it down to me. But um, he... He was a star employee. He was there, one of the first ones. And when he passed, he actually, he'd had um, kind of like some words with another employee about an overtime shift. So they sent him home and they were like, go cool off, you know, come yeah. back on Monday, take a couple of days, take the weekend. And he had his heart attack a couple of days later. Wow. And it was really important for me to meet with, I met with uh, his head of HR, I met with the man that he had that altercation with at my dad's workstation um, that June. And I went in and I kind of like, I hadn't really like allowed myself to feel the grief at that point. Um, but I went in and I met everybody. And then when I met this man, I was like, everybody kind of give us a few minutes. Yeah. And he said to me, I knew your dad for 12 years and your dad taught me everything I know. And, you know, he came to this country and my dad taught him his trade. And he was like, when I argued with your dad, like, and then he was gone. Like he kind of blamed himself. And yeah. I was like, whoa, you know, you're not what I thought you were either. I expected some angry person and to see somebody grieving like me again, I saw yeah. my grief in right. him. And I was like, no, thank you so much. I know my dad would have said sorry to you, like if he could have. So yeah. like, take the apology from me. And he did. And he was able to show me like my dad's writing everywhere on like all the number charts and stuff and the bench where my dad had sat every day and that was sort of like such a gift at that time um and that was really impactful to me but yeah my dad was just an amazing person and he was brilliant um for somebody who you know he didn't have a college degree but he didn't need one he was just he could tell you anything about world war ii um he 
he really is probably the one who won second place in my sixth grade science fair. <laughs> um, he, <Yeah>. was, <laughs> he knew it was a dad competition, yeah. he said. Um, but he was that person, and he um, you know, got me into astronomy and science and really sparked a lifetime love of it. <laughs> right. um, so you have a family now, Eric, mm-hmm. and, and you're... Um, Eva. Yes. Um, she is your, uh, what is she? You're not your manager. She's your uh, She's my agent. agent. She's <laughs> my agent. And I'm here, I hear she's uh, quite she's, the artist as well. She is. How old she, is Eva? She is 10, um, and she just graduated from her first uh, eight-week art course where she focused on foundational techniques for Good drawing applause. and painting. Oh, you need an applause for that. <laughs> That's I don't know if one. they can hear it, but there's a lot of applause for yes, you, Eva. Yes. So come here, Eva. Oh, goodness. Come here. Let's say hi, hi to our, uh, Come on, our audience. Turn around. And yes. Wave. 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 Hey. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> You're, a star You're famous. Now. Yes. So that's awesome. They uh, have a great family there. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, so I'll get into Unsolved RI. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a team that works with you. Oh Correct. yeah! Why don't you um, give them a shout out and uh, tell tell us about? Oh, she's getting her her cards. <laughs> oh tell yeah! Tell us about your the members of your team and what they do for you. So there's so many different members, okay. and I see hopefully that hopefully there's not like thousands because we're going to be here too long. <laughs> I I mean there's hundreds when you start uh, talking about the uncovered community and just the collective impact of that platform and community. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Um, I would say some of the main folks. Uh, Katie Tadlock is one of the main moderators with unsolved ri who helps out with the social side of it and really keeps it going and anytime there is a missing person case she is the number one person i go to um she's helped us really uh make an impact on those cases by sharing them across the east coast missing and unsolved group and also the buried cold cases group which collectively there's over a quarter of a million members in that um so kind of a huge network to be able to share different um victims who need to have their stories highlighted um so that's katie then we also have uh rachel roslett who is uh, the head of data visualization um and she also does a whole ton of work over at the uncovered uh, site she's on their leadership team and she's amazing um she really got me onto the platform and i She's fantastic. Um, and then there is JoLynn Rice, who she is with Cold Case Advocacy uh, based in New York. And she's also uh, one of the leaders of the community side of Uncovered. Um, she's helped significantly with, you know, when we're when we're stuck with a case of like, you know, how how can we bring this any further? Mm-hmm. She's the one who's sort of like, let's get them connected with this person or that person. Um, you know, there's so many people. Um, I'm also also involved with the Licensed Private Detectives Association of Rhode Island. That's a recent one, um, but I'm very excited about that group. A ton of great people. And if there's any law enforcement folks listening or PIs, we're always accepting new members and would love to hear from you. Um, and yeah, I also have to give a huge thanks to Chad Priddle. So Chad Priddle is over at Paracrime TV. Uh, he is a Canadian individual who's presently living in China. 
And he helps visualize or revisualize, I should say, some of our case summaries. Um, so one that always comes to mind for people is for Nicole Parsons Bucky. Um, she was a 27-year-old mother who was killed on 9-11. Her case did not get the media attention that it needed at the time because it was 9-11. Right. Um, so all these years later, uh, we all work very closely with Robin Parsons, who she is the fierce mama bear advocate for Nicole um, and you know she's also now broadened her efforts to try and prevent the situation for other young persons who are in domestic violence situations um, but anyway Chad really brought her case back to life Nicole's case by putting her timeline into a short video that used a lot of like stock media but just to give you the image of like what happened to her but most importantly, he gave a timeline that showed this, you know, tight space between events that really spelled out her case. And, you know, things really took off from there. And now she's got people who are really reaching out and more attention on it, which is amazing. And he's done that for several of our cases and continues reaching out, wanting to do more. So thanks to all of those folks. Um, um, cool. Uh, Authorum Inc. Is that? Did you mention them? Because I read you you work along with them as well. So Authorum um, and public probably knows them more as DNA Solves. Um, if you go on Facebook and you look up the DNA Solves Advocates Group, um, those folks they are based in Texas and they're using modern DNA testing, um, cutting edge technology to be able to solve cold cases, and they're really transforming the cold case game, mm -hmm. um, reducing the backlog. In giving uh, long overdue justice to victims and families. Um, I totally support their effort. And before Unsolved RI, I really channeled a lot of my energy into um, promoting their cases and trying to get them fully funded so that DNA testing could be done. Um, so always grateful to them and inspired by what they're doing. And when it comes to Rhode Island cases, anytime there's, uh, you know, something's happened and there is a DNA sample where the subject is unidentified. I love hearing about those because that's what Authorum specializes in, and they do it better than anybody. They work with the FBI um, and many other agencies across the nation. I would love to see them start solving cases in Rhode Island. Um, now, you, you mentioned, um, I know in, in messaging me, you, it was a, uh, I don't know if it was like a genetic testing that uh, helped mm -hmm. catch the Golden State yeah. Um, so the uh, same DNA testing technology that they're using now to solve cold cases is the exact same kind that was used to catch the Golden State Killer. Um, I want to say it was 2018. Mm -hmm. It was like right after I got reconnected with my brother's. And the same exact method that I used to find them, they used a, just a much more advanced mm. version of that where you're taking the DNA sample. And yes, you don't have this person in CODIS, which is the standard database that law enforcement always used. And CODIS looks at like 10 to 20 different markers for DNA analysis um, to try and produce a match versus modern DNA testing where you're looking at tens to hundreds of thousands of unique 
unique identifiers mm-hmm. to pull a profile on somebody. So what they do with investigative genetic genealogy, which is the technique that was used to catch him and kind of like, you know, my backyard version of it to find my brothers, they took the uh, killer's DNA sample and then you just shake down the family tree. Yeah, they found like an eighth cousin that once mm-hmm. removed or some crazy thing yep. like that. Yep, and you just trace through census records and family records and social <laughs> media. I'm sure that was a monumental effort and tons of people involved, obviously. But, you know, that's becoming the norm. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've come a long way in, yeah. in all this. Um, cool. what, uh, can you name a, a case or two that you uh, worked on that has been solved? So nothing yet has been solved um, as far as the cold cases go. But when it comes to uh, missing persons, um, that's my passion is missing persons um, or helping locate missing persons, I should say. Um, Between December of last year and March of this year, we helped locate four missing persons. Um, Yeah, including a mother of three who'd been gone for over a month, um, a United States veteran who went missing for two weeks without a trace, a 13-year-old girl. Um, She was actually from Massachusetts, but we wanted to help out our neighbors when we were directly contacted um, by family friends. Uh, She was moved to Massachusetts two hours north, and she was successfully located before she was moved uh, to Florida. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. So she was found, and then uh, also an 11-year-old boy he was all over the news. Um, he went running out of his house on Christmas night with no shoes on. And he was found several days later in somebody's junked car in their backyard. And the guy mm. had seen all the media about what was going on. And that was what prompted him to call when he saw um, some movement in the car. That's actually, yeah. I mean, it must be very fulfilling when oh, yeah. <laughs> when someone is found and you're, you're part of the uh, process to... Yeah, I um I still have the text too from the lead detective on that little boy's case. Um, you know you can't really put that into words, yeah. but it's like I remember being out there with volunteers, like unsolved volunteers. Uh, you know, a couple nights before he was found, or the night before he was found, putting up flyers. It was like. 30 degrees out, freezing cold, there's snow, your fingers are frozen Mm. as you're trying to put these things on telephone poles. You're worried about, like, am I safe out here? Um, But we had so many people from the community helping us, and it was, like, everybody, like, that little boy was everybody's son for those few days. And when that detective texted me and he said, we got him, he's okay, it was just, like, Whoa. Mm. And he um he actually was kind enough to give me a call later on that day, like obviously once all the chaos died down. And he said, you know, we just wanted to say thank you to your team for assisting the effort. And um what was cool is we were partnered with uh, the Rhode Island Canine Search and Rescue uh, Group for this. They are a nonprofit organization, fantastic folks led by um, President Jim Rowley. And he reached out to us. I think it was this case was the first one, that little boy. And he wanted to help. So we were keeping him updated the whole time as we were kind of like streamlining communication for all these different groups. And the uh, detective had said to me, um, you know, if that last lead hadn't panned out, um, the state police actually didn't have any dogs available. We were going to call your guy and have you guys come in and run the scent trail. And it was like, whoa, that was the first sign of like, we're doing something here that like, you know, putting something in place that can be that fail safe for an agency or that Mm. can be that 
sign of relief for a community member. Um, and I have to give huge credit. You know, it's funny you you made your um, what was it you say like uno dos or something in the beginning when you were saying you're Spanish. Oh yeah, es. I forgot it now. <laughs> Episodia dos. Dios mio. Um, but it was, it's funny you say that because that little boy's case was the first time that we introduced uh, missing person flyers in Spanish oh, okay. and social media posts in Spanish because his family primarily spoke Spanish at home and he came from a Hispanic neighborhood. So why are we going to be out there with English posters Absolutely. and flyers? Like, oh, great, someone's missing i have no idea um so we started to translate and now um that's always something that we ask when we're approaching a case is is this in an area where there's a different language that's primarily spoken or written um you know what nationality is this person how can we not only make sure we're communicating effectively but also pay proper tribute to their heritage and Mm -hmm. not misappropriate them um so that was really important and we got the whole community involved and to me that was sort of my first sign of like wow we can make this happen. We really can have this community that helps solve these cases and keeps people safe and makes an impact. So um, gracias to the entire <laughs> Hispanic community that helps because um, they all got that little boy home. And what must be tough when the families come to you, it must be like that wit's end sort of, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, and as far yeah. as people care about that. People, you know, unless it happens to you, I'm sure you can't understand what that's like to go through somebody, yeah. child missing or... What you went through or anything else like that. Or worse, I um I'm wearing an Olivia's Army shirt, which wow. um this is an important one. And when we talk about giving shout outs and giving thanks, more than that, I wanted to, if I can, take a couple minutes to give some support. Absolutely. Um so for those who haven't heard, Olivia Pazzaretti, um, she was a 17-year-old girl who was killed on her way home from uh, ringing in the new year with her sisters. And uh, she wasn't impaired. She wasn't doing anything wrong. She was just having fun with her family. And she was hit uh, by a repeat offender, a, a career criminal, um, who had a suspended uh, license charge on his record and all this other stuff um, and had made notes uh, stating his intent to uh, go out and commit a crime prior to doing this. And he hit Olivia's car on the highway. She uh, went off the road, flipped, and hit a tree. And she was pronounced on the scene. Um, That was January 1st, just after midnight. We are now approaching May, and this individual still has not, the one who killed Olivia, still has not been charged with anything close to murder or vehicular homicide or anything like that, despite, I mean, he even ran from the scene. Was this the person that was driving a... This is um, a person that we, you know... We work with. Yes, is 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 uncle her uncle yeah. oh goodness yeah. oh yeah. yeah yeah it's um i mean it's see like there's everybody knows about olivia yeah. or knows her family and they've been such a part of this community for so long um but a few weeks after she was killed um my cousin jared actually reached out mm-hmm. to me and said hey I know her aunt and um you know I've been talking with her and this is a nightmare situation like 
can Unsolved RI do anything to support this? And I was like, well, we do, you know, missing persons and cold mm. cases. And I took one look at it and said, and now I guess we do this too. <laughs> um, it was just such an obvious thing. So I reached out to um, Janine. Um, Janine is Olivia's mom, Janine Pazzaretti Malloy, and uh, Dennis Malloy, who is Olivia's stepdad, Janine's husband. Um, amazing people. And uh, really just... I mean, to talk to them, it takes your breath away. It it takes all the words. And um, they really motivated me to just speak out more and to be more active and to be more supportive. And we got really innovative to keep Olivia's story at the top Mm -hmm. of people's news feeds because, um, you know, people were reporting posts about her and trying to get Janine silenced and to be able to create a page on Unsolved RI for Olivia and to send out that message of we don't accept hate for victims and we don't, we're not going to stand for repeat offenders constantly getting to slide because you know that's just the way it's always been done um and you know a month and a half after olivia's gone matthew dennison another uh local standout kid who had a whole life ahead of him he was also killed by somebody an impaired driver Mm. um you know both of these families uh, olivia's family and matthew's family they don't have resolution and every day they are being dragged through their grief in front of the public and in front of politicians Mm. for what um, and that's something where the Uncovered team and everybody at Unsolved RI, we sit down and it's, we don't want people to be paraded across media um, and have their trauma used for ratings or for whatever. It's, what can we do to turn consumption into advocacy? How can we help? And, um, you know, Olivia's family, I'm just really grateful to them as well because, you know, we've been able to support and I so I wore the shirt today mm. just to um, kind of send that message of if you haven't yet, please sign her petition um, to ask the state, demand the state to actually please protect innocent people and deliver some justice. Um, and we've got links to everything to support her story and learn more on um, Unsolved RI. OK, great. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, she seemed like a she had the world ahead of her. But she, Absolutely. Right, young lady, mm-hmm. uh, talented. I'm sure the other the boy mm-hmm. was too, and it is a shame. Yeah, Olivia was a black belt in karate. She, um, if you, if anybody looks her up on TikTok, she was known for posting dancing happy videos that were uplifting and shared motivational messages for people. Um, she was finally coming into her own and being comfortable with who she was in life and as a person. And uh, Matthew, same thing. He was on his way back with um, his friend Kevin and teammate Kevin. He was the captain of mm. his hockey team, the West Warwick Exeter West Greenwich team. Um, they were uh, at a prospecting event in Connecticut and came or were coming back from that. So it's like another innocent life that is ruined <laughs> for mm. no reason. Yeah. Um, and, you know, here we are. It's been almost five months for Olivia and, you know, almost four months for Matthew and there's still no resolution. Yeah. So uh, take the time to visit on South RI and, and do sign that petition to help yes, Olivia please. and her family out. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of cases, um, we haven't even <laughs> begun to talk about your mother's case. So, oh. um, so we're over an hour into it. So what we're going to do is we're going to end it here out sure. and we're going to, we're going to uh, make this a two part. 
Oh, goodness. Uh, yes, because we have a, usually do an episode every yeah. month, so we're going to do it um, a week apart. So oh, cool. um, we will see you um, next week. And <laughs> we'll be wearing the same clothes next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we'll see you next week on What's Your Story. Thank you.